You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. The theme of this year's National Eye Awareness Initiative is that vision really matters. Research shows that sight is the sense we fear losing the most, yet many of us, it's claimed, don't know how to look after our eyes. Louise Gao is clinical lead for eye health and low vision at the RNIB. We know that around about 2 million people live with some level of sight loss. So that might be people waiting for surgery. It might be people who just simply haven't had a routine eye examination and don't have the right glasses. So it depends how you define sight loss. There's around about 350,000 people on the register as sight impaired in the UK. You don't have to be on the register if you're sight impaired. There are people that are not on the register who you would consider to be blind or partially sighted. We estimate up to about 50% is avoidable. And in that category would be people that haven't come forward for treatment or who haven't had routine eye examinations and have missed the chance for treatment. There might be people who don't know how to use the healthcare system in the UK or who have concerns around wearing glasses when they were little. So perhaps they didn't have an eye examination when they were young. And that meant that they developed an amblyopic or a lazy eye. And then there are groups of people who find having an eye test very difficult. So people with learning disabilities and perhaps who don't have English as their first language, they miss the opportunity for treatment. Are there particular groups of people who are more at risk? Yes, definitely. We know that the older you are, the more risk there is of sight loss. In your lifetime, you have a one in five chance of having sight loss. And as you get older, with each decade, that increases. So by the time you're 90, you have a one in two chance of having sight loss. If you are from an ethnic community, then you're more likely to have diabetes and glaucoma. Those are two big causes of sight loss. If you're female, two thirds of the people on the registration are female. People with learning disabilities are 10 times more likely. If you're a child with learning disabilities, you're 28 times more likely to have sight loss. And another group that's perhaps worth mentioning here are people who don't have a fixed address and don't have access to eye care so easily. For those of us not living with sight loss, what steps can we take with regards to diet, exercise, lifestyle factors, etc. to contribute to better eye health? This is a really important question. Anything that is good for your heart and your brain is good for your eyes. Anything that keeps your blood vessels healthy managing your weight, managing your sugar levels. If you have diabetes, managing your diabetes, your blood pressure, exercise. If you smoke, you are twice as likely to have sight loss, according to the statistics. You'll see some vitamin supplements on the shelves in the pharmacies. There's no evidence to suggest that taking those supplements will stop you getting sight loss. There are certain groups of people with established eye disease that do benefit statistically from those supplements, but taking them will not reduce your risks. But a good, healthy diet, what they call a rainbow plate, lots of colourful vegetables will do your eyes the world of good. Why are regular eye checks important? There's two main reasons. Firstly, because way too many people live in the UK with cataracts and with ageing conditions such as just simply needing reading glasses that are not corrected. But more importantly, there are a number of eye conditions that are silent, if you like. So you don't have obvious symptoms of them and they will be picked up in a routine eye examination before they've done any damage. Glaucoma is a classic example that is caused when the pressure goes up in the eye and that damages the optic nerve. But it's not until it's quite a late stage that you will have symptoms of that. So having a routine eye examination will pick up glaucoma before it's done any damage and then it can be treated and controlled. 
Diabetes as well, you can have quite a lot of damage at the back of the eye from diabetes before you're aware of it. And then the treatment is much harder. Keeping on top of those two factors by having a routine eye examination is so important. And for children, of course, I think there's a lot of myths around eye care for children that wearing glasses makes your sight worse and that sort of thing. But actually, it can prevent a lot of sight loss that's as a result of developmental change. So for instance, if you have a squint or a lazy eye, one eye that's more long-sighted than the other if that's treated before you're around about the age of eight then you can prevent a lazy eye from happening so getting the children in for routine tests is just as important as having an eye test as you get older we recommend an eye test at least every two years and more frequently if you have certain eye conditions like glaucoma or if you're diabetic and your optometrist will tell you how frequently you should attend for an eye test but a good average is every two years my grateful thanks to Louise Gao for further information on this story and links through to the RNIB. Log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Pulmonary fibrosis is an incurable interstitial lung disease. There are over 200 different types, and in many cases, there's no known cause. Steve Jones is from the charity Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis. Pulmonary fibrosis is a process by which your lungs become scarred. Over a period of time, the lungs become more and more hard, unable to absorb oxygen. So it's a really devastating disease. Very few people have heard of pulmonary fibrosis. So we have a real job in raising awareness. I mean, I should have said at the outset, I was a patient, lived with pulmonary fibrosis for eight years, and very fortunately had a lung transplant six years ago. For me, it started with a tickly cough, very, very frequent. And in my case, the cough led to an x-ray, led to all the other tests, and ultimately a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF, which is pulmonary fibrosis of unknown cause. For some people, it's cough. For other people, you are breathless already by the time you go to the doctor. And there may be one or two other things, people who are feeling particularly fatigued or whatever. But the test for the doctor is that they listen to your lungs with a stethoscope around the back. And if they hear crackles, a bit like Rice Krispies or Velcro sort of sound in your lungs as you breathe in, that's for them a good indication that this could be fibrosis and they need to refer you to get more accurate tests done. Steve, pulmonary fibrosis is uncommon, affecting around 70,000 people across the UK. And it can take time for a successful diagnosis to be made. I understand the patient-led charity you chair has made moves to help general practitioners improve their understanding. The main problem with pulmonary fibrosis is that when you go to your GP, the GP automatically thinks of the things they see more commonly. So they think of asthma, they may put you onto a puffer. They think of COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and they may think of what they need to do for that. And they may think it's an infection, give you antibiotics. So it can take a little while for the doctors to become aware that there's something else here. We have an agreement with the Royal College of General Practitioners where we've produced training modules for GPs, which they can do in about an hour, which gives them all the information they need to know about. How do you diagnose it? What do you need to do? How do you manage the disease with the patient going forward? Treatment options for pulmonary fibrosis are limited. However, I know from first-hand experience that the UK is blessed with a network of the finest lung health specialists that's the envy of the world. From my research, I see your organisation, alongside medics, have been proactive in working to ensure that the pharmacological interventions that can slow the progression of pulmonary fibrosis are available for all. Maintaining a good diet, not smoking, making sure you get your vaccinations for flu, COVID and pneumococcal are important. 
important. As the disease progresses, oxygen therapy plays a crucial role and access to pulmonary rehabilitation is also key. Which is exercise classes linked to education at the same time. When I had the disease in my last year before transplant, that completely transformed my world. It transformed me physically. It made me able to do more, but it also perked me up psychologically. It was great. I was doing something. I was feeling better. And that was really, really good. So I really do encourage patients always, even if you can't get on a course straight away, make sure you keep your exercise going. Living with an uncommon condition that very few of us have heard of, let alone know anything about, can be very isolating. And I know that's something your organisation has helped address through the formation of a network of support groups across the UK. Local support groups, we have 75 active groups across the country and we were heading for 100 so that nobody would be more than an hour away from a support group. COVID, of course, has changed the ways we do lots of things. Some are now face-to-face. Many of them are on Zoom. It's sharing, it's mutual support, incredibly powerful. My grateful thanks to Steve Jones. To find out more about pulmonary fibrosis and to connect through to the charity, log on to our website, www.weddenhealth.com. That's www.weddenhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. When you hear the word malnutrition, you can be forgiven for letting your mind wander to people in underdeveloped countries. But the reality is, it's around every corner of the UK. Nusrat Kaza is a Bradford-based dietitian. We have more than 3 million people who are malnourished or at risk of malnutrition. Of these, at least 1.3 million of them are over 65. Most cases here are disease-related malnutrition, a term Age UK research says isn't well understood. For a better definition, I spoke to Ruth Harvey, a registered dietitian in Tynemouth. This type of malnutrition often stems from loss of appetite and unplanned weight loss due to an illness. It's either the symptoms of the illness or the treatment that means the person eats less. Another cause can be a person's social circumstances or it can be that the illness itself means that they burn more energy and their energy requirements are more. Lucy Marland, a care home dietitian in Cardiff, explains the range of people affected or at risk. People that may suffer from a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as COPD. People who may have been diagnosed with cancer, people who may have a progressive neurological disorder such as dementia or motor neuron disease, or someone who may have had a change in their swallowing ability. So it's going to be affecting their ability to eat. And this is also known as dysphagia. Someone who was maybe admitted to hospital with an acute illness. And we've also got the group which would come under the frailty group. So those older in age, maybe a reduction in mobility and have also recently been admitted to hospital. The consequences of disease-related malnutrition are wide-ranging. Dahlia Campbell is a registered dietitian based in Tayside. What we see in practical terms, somebody may not be getting enough energy. They're going to start using up some of their muscle mass. If you lose muscle, you don't have the strength that you need just for daily tasks. But also it can be strength around different muscles. So for example, the muscles involved in in breathing and swallowing and all of those sorts of things. We also see increased risk of infection. And if somebody gets an infection, it takes them a lot longer to recover. And all of these things of course, impact on somebody's quality of life. If somebody is going into hospital, somebody that's malnourished tends to have a longer stay in hospital. If they have to go through an operation, they can get more risk of complications 
or they may take longer to recover. They can develop sores in hospital or at home because they've not got enough muscle mass and enough fat mass. They're more at risk of falls. We know that people with malnutrition tend to go to the GP more frequently as well. So there's a huge impact. Dietitians play a vital role in assisting people with disease-related malnutrition. Jennifer Van Zant, an Isle of Wight-based dietitian working across three GP practices, explains their approach. When we assess someone, it's quite holistic. We look at their height, weight, BMI. We look at age. We look at biochemistry. We look at past medical history, social history, and their socioeconomic status. Based on all of that, we come up with a nutrition diagnosis followed by a plan, which we agree with the patient. And that plan is very individualized to that person and everything that they've got going on with them. We then monitor that person and constantly reassess to see if we need to make changes One of the major challenges in disease-related malnutrition is identifying those who may be living with it. For tips on what we can do if we suspect we're at risk or a loved one is at risk, I recruited the aid of Victoria Dagnan, a community dietitian in Dudley. Ask about someone's appetite, how they're getting on with their shopping and their food preparation, and do they need any help with eating and drinking? And then look, often there are signs of unplanned weight loss. So someone may have loose jewellery, they may have some ill-fitting clothes, they might have lost their interest in food as well. Have conversations with people, listen to their issues around eating and drinking, and help them to to get adequate, appropriate advice and support. My grateful thanks to all my guests. To find out more about disease-related malnutrition, onto our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health. 